I would like to say good evening to you and welcome all who are here, especially if you're visiting and not a member of the Church of Christ. We want you to know how grateful we are that you have come our way this evening. This is not uh, a meeting that is designed to pick a fight in any way, but all of the speakers that have been asked to come and speak have been given the subjects that they are to speak on and to speak forth words of truth, and so that's what I intend to do this evening. I want to express my thanks to the church here and its elders for the invitation to come and speak this evening on the subject that you've asked me to speak about. And I want to tell you a couple of reasons why I'm really glad to be here. Uh, One, of course you know, if you uh, are in uh, a friendship or relationship in any way with me, know that I have moved from Tennessee to Alabama. I've spent 41 years of my life in Tennessee, and I love living in Alabama, but I, I have always been a fan of living here. I grew up here, was born here. And so I suppose in some respects, even though one day I want to move to Florida, uh, I I just can't uh, say anything more but that my heart will always be in Tennessee. Uh, Also, uh, I'm happy to be here for another reason. Sunday a week ago, I woke up with a severe case of hoarseness. I couldn't speak at all hardly. And yet I went ahead and muscled my way through the Bible class and the morning worship, and that just made it worse. And so in between the services... I could tell I was going to have a real difficult time uh, getting out the evening lesson, but I did it just barely above a whisper. It was just pretty pathetic. By the time Wednesday rolled around, I had not spoken much at all between Sunday and Wednesday, and I was not able at all to speak with anything but a whisper, and so I couldn't teach my Bible class, and we had to have an emergency uh, switcheroonie there, and we just decided to have a, a singing service Wednesday night on the fly. And then Sunday, this past Sunday, we started our meeting at Somerville Road in Decatur that ran through last night, and so I had the week off and not, not didn't have to speak, but at a bare minimum. And so I'm hoping uh, that my, I know that my voice is back about 95%. I'm satisfied that I'll be able to make it through uh, the lesson, but I'm hoping that it will hold out so that we can get forth some points that we need to be thinking about. But I appreciate the support of all who are here. There are those who have traveled from a great distance. We appreciate that. Years ago, when gospel meetings would get underway, nobody thought much about driving 40, 45 minutes to be at a meeting with a dollar a gallon gas, but now it's not so much. And uh, In other words, I should say it's really actually much more than that, and so it's not so much accessible to drive as far as we used to to gospel meetings. But I want you to know that you're an encouragement to me. And uh, I apologize for taking up too much time here in the introduction saying all of these pleasantries, but as Greg mentioned, we'll be whisking away to the virtual Bible study at the close, and I'll, I'll miss being able to to speak with so many. We have family here, and it's good to see you, and uh, I hate that I won't be able to spend much more time than that, but maybe next time I can come on a different night. But I'm looking forward to the virtual Bible study as well. I always enjoy being a part of that, and I commend the work that uh, Jacob and Greg have done with that and the work that the College View Church has done with it through the years in hosting it. The question that we're asking tonight, in keeping with the theme of what makes the Church of Christ different, is as it relates to her public worship that she practices. Of course, we're referring to the church in the feminine as the church is described in the Scriptures as the bride of Christ, the wife of the Lamb, Revelation 21, verses 1 through 9. And then, of course, a similar picture given in Ephesians chapter 5, verses 22 through about verse 33. In Acts chapter 2 is where we want to begin this evening in establishing why we're asking this question and some things that we need to consider as we discuss the subject of the difference in the Church of Christ as it relates to her public worship that she practices. 
You're familiar with Acts chapter 2 and the occasion that is taking place there, the Jewish feast day of Pentecost. And Jesus has promised that the Holy Spirit will come upon His apostles. This is the promise of the Father. And so after appearing to them over a period of 40 days after His resurrection, He then ascends to heaven. And some 10 days later, we're going to see the day of Pentecost come about. And on this occasion, the Holy Spirit comes upon the apostles, and there is a charge made by the Jews that have gathered on this occasion, suggesting that the apostles, because of their speaking in tongues, languages that they have not studied, natural languages, not heavenly languages, but languages of men that they've never studied, there is a charge leveled against these men that they are drunk even here at the third hour of the day at 9 o'clock in the morning. Well, Peter refutes that and refutes it thoroughly, showing that Joel actually prophesied of this back in Joel chapter 2, verses 28 through 32, and he eloquently sets that forward in Acts chapter 2, about verses 14 through 21. Well, in verse 21, he begins to turn his attention to the meat of his lesson, showing that these people are guilty of having crucified the Son of God by the hands of godless men and put Him to death. But God, who delivered Him over for that purpose because He was a sacrifice for sin, has raised Him up again. And these apostles are witnesses of that resurrection. Now, as he goes on, he highlights something that David said that would come back into play later in the lesson. David says in Psalm 16 at verse 8, I have set the Lord continually before me. Because He is at my right hand, I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad, my glory rejoices, my flesh also will dwell securely. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, nor will you allow your Holy One to undergo decay. If we were reading that without the benefit of the New Testament, it would seem like David is speaking of himself. So jumping ahead into this sermon that Peter is preaching, notice verse 29 in Acts chapter 2. He says, Brethren, I may confidently say regarding the patriarch David that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. And so because he was a prophet and knew that God had sworn to him with an oath to seat one of his descendants on his throne, he looked ahead and spoke of the resurrection of the Christ, that he was neither abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh suffer decay. This Jesus God also raised up again, to which we are all witnesses. Therefore, having been exalted to the right hand of God, And having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, He has poured forth this which you both see and hear. For it was not David who ascended into heaven, but he himself said, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Therefore let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now we see that Luke records the reaction on this occasion in verse 37. Now when they heard this, they were pierced to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brethren, what shall we do? Peter responds, Repent, and let every one of you be baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ unto the remission of your sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call to Himself. With many other words, Peter solemnly testified and kept on exhorting them, saying, Save yourselves from this untoward generation. So then those who received His word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. Now notice verse 42. They continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and to fellowship and to the breaking of bread and to prayer, and it is there that we're going to pick up with our discussion the difference in the church of Christ, the public worship, that she practices. Let me submit to you as we introduce the lesson that differences 
are important in many respects. They are important because they help us to identify the things that we're looking for. Think in terms of just your everyday life. Trying to spot something that you need to spot or identify something that you need to identify and you need to be able to discern it from something else. For instance, someone might be looking for a brick building in the downtown area where most of the buildings are encompassed about by glass. Or in something that seems to be a little more practical to us, maybe someone has lost a dog. We're looking for a German Shepherd dog but we need to be able to discern the difference in a German Shepherd and a Poodle and know the difference in those dogs so that when we spot what we're looking for, we can say, I've found it. Or just the same, maybe you have a phone book and you're looking through the phone book and you need to appreciate as you're looking through the phone book that you may be looking for the last name Wallace, not the last name Walker. And so you need to be able to understand the difference as you lift these names out of the phone book. Just as important as it is for us to understand differences like this, it is equally, if not more important, for us to understand differences as it relates to the church that we read about in the Scripture versus the churches of men, or what we may refer to from time to time as denominationalism. Going back over the things that you've already learned this week, what we have seen to be established by way of lessons is that Jesus built and established only one church. In Matthew 16 and verse 18, He teaches of that. And as members of that church, the church that He has called out of the world, we are to be different. Ephesians 4 and verse 4 tells us that there is but one body. We also learned this week in this series of meetings with different speakers the origin of the church and the designations by which it is known in Scripture. You might read again in Matthew 16 and verse 18 how that Jesus said, I will build my church. He takes possession of that and ownership of it. And we see where Paul writes in Romans 16 and verse 16 that they were to greet one another with a holy kiss. The churches of Christ salute you. And you can be sure that the churches of Christ were not different churches teaching different things. They were different local churches for sure. Maybe identified such as the church of God at Corinth or the church at Ephesus, or the way. But these were not teaching different things from one another besides that which they were rebuked for by way of the error that some were espousing there and troubling others. But in essence, this is the same group. And they are teaching and practicing the same things. We've also learned this week that there is a difference in the church of Christ in that it adheres to the authority of Christ. It calls for the authority of Christ because it understands those who make it up that we cannot move, or in essence, we cannot work and worship apart from that which He has given us to do. Colossians 3 and verse 17, we're going to come back and look at that in just a moment. Whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, giving thanks to Him through God the Father. When I do something, I need to have heaven's authority behind it. I don't need to do something and suggest that, well, this is the way we've always done it, and this is the way we're always going to do it without any further thought. No, I need to do it with heaven's authority. By what authority are we doing whatever it is that we do? It better be by the authority of heaven. And we learned last night about the work that the church must do, the work that it is to be involved in. We understand we're not going to litigate that again because we've already established what this is. Uh, we see that the church is to be involved in the preaching of the gospel. We see that the church is involved in the edification, the building up of one another, and in benevolence toward the needy saints among it. And you established that very well last night. And tomorrow night you're going to see how the church is different in that it holds to a different plan of salvation. Here's what we mean by that. And again, we'll save the brunt of that for your speaker tomorrow evening that there are plans of salvation being advocated in the denominational world and the churches of men today that suggest that one may be saved in various ways, through a dream, through a sinner's prayer, through faith only, things of which we read absolutely nothing about in Scripture by way of the saving process. 
You're going to learn tomorrow night what the Bible says about how it is that one is saved and as such added to the body of Christ. But tonight our focus is on the public worship that is practiced by the church as yet another reason that the church of Christ is different. What makes the church of Christ different? The public worship that she practices makes the church of Christ different. Let's establish, first of all, that the worship that we must engage in is to be in spirit and truth. Now, we are familiar with the phrase from which this verse comes. We see when Jesus is speaking with the woman of Samaria in John chapter 4 and verse 23 when He says, But an hour is coming, and now is, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for such people the Father seeks to be His worshipers. God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship Him in spirit and truth. So let's try to consider for just a few moments what this means. The idea of worshiping in spirit and truth. When we think about worshiping God in spirit, we should appreciate that God is not material. He is not physical in the sense, or in any sense of the word. He is not physical. Uh, he is spiritual. He is eternal. And He is eternal even in the heavens. He is omniscient. He is omnipotent. He is omnipresent. We cannot even begin to fathom the greatness and the depth of Almighty God. He is spirit. And as such, we worship Him in spirit as a spiritual being. He is not material. He is not uh, fixed up by human hands. He is not repaired because of the damage done to Him by the elements, as an idol would be. God is spirit, and we worship Him as a spiritual being, and thus as a being that is reasonable. We know and understand what it is that we are doing. We know and are able to understand what it is that we are to do as it relates to our worship of Almighty God. And also, the idea of worshiping in spirit would come along the lines of the proper attitude. Now, what does that mean? If we're going to worship God with the proper attitude, then we need to appreciate that the proper attitude is an attitude of reverence or godly fear. And that is something that I think we've looked over in establishing the idea of worshiping God in spirit and truth, and I'll tell you why I think that. Because we hear so much about the idea of worshiping in spirit being with the right attitude. In generic terms, we think of it being in joy and in love and in happiness and in faithfulness and all of these good things. There's no question about that. But I'm going to come back in just a moment and revisit this idea of reverence and show you the difference in this and why we need to consider this and the idea of worshiping God in spirit as it relates to the worship that folks are offering to God today. Now let's move from that and consider the second part of the statement where Jesus says that God is spirit and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and truth. When we talk about worshiping God in truth, what are we talking about? Surely we could consider the idea that we should not worship Him in a hypocritical way and that would certainly fall under the umbrella of truth. But to get to the meat of the issue, we need to appreciate that when we worship God, we can only worship Him according to that which He has revealed. And so we're worshiping in truth. Truth is the Word of God. It's not subjective. It's not ever-changing. It is not something that must change with the times. We've heard a lot of calling for that over the last several decades, that as the times change, we need to soften our approach and we need to change the message of the Scriptures and all of this kind of thing. And that is utter nonsense. 
We need to continue to preach in the 21st century the way they did in the 1st century. We need to call people's attention back to what saith the Scripture. Because when we don't do that, then we're going to look down the road 50 and 60 years from now and wonder what in the world happened to the church. Why are there no distinctive lessons coming forth from the church? Why is it that what is being preached here sounds just like what's being preached somewhere else, even concerning the plan of salvation? Now, the idea of being different is not something we do just for the sake of being different. We are different because God has called us to be different, and we're walking by the same standard. Back to Colossians chapter 3 and verse 17. Paul says, "...whatever you do in word or deed, do all..." in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, giving thanks through Him to God the Father. The idea of doing all in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ is not to be understood as some kind of vain or futile phrase that people utter after everything they do. One is opening the car door. I better say in the name of the Lord when I do that. One is thinking about getting up off of the car. I better do this in the name of the Lord. This kind of thing. The idea of doing something in the name of the Lord is the idea of doing that by the authority of Jesus Christ, the Son of God who has all authority. When we do something in word or deed, specifically as it relates to what I'm doing tonight, in word, what I teach, in deed, what I practice, the way I worship, all of these kinds of things, must be in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. I must have heaven's authority behind it. And I might say this about that. There are some folks that tell us today that as long as it seems good, and when I say folks, I don't just mean the quote-unquote churches of men. Some of our brethren are telling us this. Telling us this. They're saying if it seems good, makes us feel good, that's what we should do. Well, if you hear nothing else I say tonight, hear this, and measure it by the Scriptures to see if what I say is right. If what you're doing is not authorized in Scripture, it is not a good work, no matter how good it appears to you to be. We must do all by the authority of Christ, and we dare not go beyond the truth in offering anything by way of worship to our Lord. We're not here to worship Him in a way that makes us feel better about ourselves. We are here to honor Almighty God. We are here to honor the Son, Jesus Christ. We're here to follow the instruction of the Spirit as revealed by the Scriptures. And if that, in doing that, makes us feel better, that's one thing. But the purpose of being here is to worship the One who deserves all worship. In 2 John 9, we're very well familiar with what that admonition is, that anyone, me, you, anyone who goes too far and does not abide in the doctrine of Christ does not have God. The one who abides in the doctrine has both the Father and the Son. So let's compare, as we move from this point, the Lord's church that we read about in Scripture to the churches of men. What is the difference? We see a stark difference, and here's what the difference is. Do the churches of men worship? Yes, they do. Does the church of Christ worship? Yes, it does. So then what's the difference? The church of Christ worships in spirit and truth, and the churches of men worship. And that's the difference. Someone says, wait a minute, I, and I've heard some of, some of my preaching brethren say, wait a minute now, Chris, the, the churches of men, they worship in spirit. Are you quite sure? Remember that point we made about reverence and the part of the spirit and the attitude that we're talking about? Godly fear. If someone feared the Lord with godly fear, he would not offer worship to him that is not authorized. 
That's not worshiping in spirit. And yet, somehow or another, excluding worshiping in truth. The very idea. Think of Noah for a minute in Hebrews 11 and verse 7. By faith, Noah, being warned by God of things not yet seen, in reverence prepared an ark for the saving of his house, by which he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness which is according to faith. Noah worshipped God with reverence, with godly fear. If you worship God in spirit, you are worshipping Him in godly fear. And you're not going to allow yourself to offer that to Him that He has not authorized. We don't get to direct worship in that respect because we don't deserve worship. It is a privilege, even though it is a command, it is a privilege to come together to worship God and to do that with brethren of like precious faith who want us to go to heaven. Now, let's consider the object of the worship. When we think about the difference in the church of Christ and the public worship that she practices, what about the object of our worship? That is, who is it that we're to worship? And with this, I don't suppose we're going to find much disagreement in any place. We understand that we must worship the Father. Remember what Jesus says to the Samaritan woman. John 4 and verse 23, An hour is coming, and now is, when all the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for such people the Father seeks to be His worshipers. Who is being worshipped? The Father is being worshipped. Go back to the temptation as recorded in Matthew chapter 4, when the devil is trying to place doubts in the minds of Christ that his Father will not provide for him. And so since he's hungry, he needs to alleviate that hunger. He needs to diminish that hunger. He sees the rocks that are on the ground, the stones that are on the ground of the devil, as the tempter says to him, if you're the Son of God, command that these become bread. And Jesus responds, it is written, man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. And then the devil, of course, we're paraphrasing through this, takes him to the temple and he has him stand on the pinnacle of the temple and tell him essentially that the Lord is not going to protect him. Do you not trust the Lord? If you are the Son of God, surely you know that if you throw yourself down, the Scripture says that He'll make sure that you don't strike your foot against a stone. But Jesus responds, on the other hand, it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And then the devil takes him to a high mountain and shows him all of the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he says to him this, I'll give you all of this, every last bit of it, if you fall down and worship me. Now there are some people that say that because Christ did not refute the statement that the devil had the right to give it to him. I disagree with that. John chapter 8, Jesus said to the Jews, You are of your father the devil. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in truth because there is no truth in him. Whenever he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own nature, for he is a liar and the father of lies. He did not have the authority to give Jesus all of those kingdoms. But at any rate, he tempts him for that prominence, for to have the preeminence that he could have on the world, rather than the prominence that comes in being the Son of God. And Jesus responds, Go, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God and serve Him only. And that statement, in all of its exclusivity, restricts me from worshiping any other but God. I simply cannot worship Mary. I cannot worship some contrived idol. I cannot worship any but God. And to worship another God is to be guilty of idolatry. We see right off the bat, as the law is being given to the Israelites, the Ten Commandments especially, the very first thing that God warns them about is idolatry. You shall have no other gods before me. Simple command. 
You shall have no other gods before me. And they were not to make for themselves an idol or any likeness of that which was in heaven or that which was on the earth or that which was under the earth. They were not to do that at all. That they were not to worship or serve them. God told them, I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the third and fourth generations to those who hate me. Well, my friend, we can see the problem with idolatry throughout the history of Israel. Did they listen to that? Certainly they did not. And they went on into idolatry uh, many, many times. Throughout the period of the judges, it seemed to be a repetitive issue over and over their problem with idolatry. They couldn't seem to fix it. They couldn't seem to come out of it. Finally they did. Actually, finally the Lord did. When He brought them into Babylonian captivity and Assyrian captivity, that was it. That fixed the problem. No more of that. But it took all of that for them to finally get it, that they were not to turn from the only, not just their God, from the only true and living God who provided for them every blessing imaginable and possible. And what is the end result of idolatry? For you and for me today, what can we learn about the end result of idolatry? What is the end of those means? If you go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 6, when Paul writes to the Corinthian Christians, those who made up the church of God at Corinth, he recalls of their past life, many of them living in fornication, in adultery, in homosexuality, as thieves, as covetous, as drunkards, and so on. He mentioned that they had some been idolaters. And what did he say about the end result of that? You will not inherit the kingdom of God. The unrighteous of which consist idolaters, will not inherit the kingdom of God. Now, these to whom he's addressing had come out of that. Verse 11 tells us that of 1 Corinthians chapter 6. But the point I want to get across is that there is no acceptable idolatry. There is no time in which we can turn aside from the one true and living God and serve another God. We are to worship the Father. Now, I said in, so in, in setting this forth that in worshiping God we can worship no other, but that begs the question, then what about Jesus Christ? Can we worship the Lord Jesus Christ? And I affirm that we can, and here's why. Because Christ is as much God as is the Father. We worship the Lord Jesus Christ as we worship the Father. Now, consider this. The angels offer worship to Christ. He is worthy to receive praise, worthy to receive honor, worthy to receive worship. And the angels worship Him. In Hebrews chapter 1, we learn there in verse 1 how that God, after He spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and in many ways, in these last days has spoken to us in His Son, whom He has appointed heir of all things and through whom also He made the world. And He is the radiance of His glory and the exact representation of His nature and upholds all things by the word of His power. When He had made purification of sins, He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much better than the angels as He has inherited a more excellent name than they. For to which of the angels did He ever say, You are My Son, today I have begotten you, and I will be a father to him and he will be a son to Me. But when he again brings forth the firstborn into the world, he says, and let all the angels of God worship him. Jesus received worship. And we see in those verses, in Hebrews chapter 1, verses 3 and 4, that he is elevated in that radiance and in that glory, that he should receive praise as the Father. And in verse 8, God addresses him in this way, 
saying, Your throne, O God, this is the Father speaking of the Son, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever, and the righteous scepter is the scepter of His kingdom. So God is showing that Jesus essentially can receive praise as He is the exact representation of His nature. And after His ascension, we see His apostles offered worship unto Him. In Luke chapter 24, after He had led them out as far as Bethany and He had blessed them and parted from them by way of His ascension to heaven, they, after worshiping Him, went to Jerusalem. So they worshiped the Lord Jesus Christ. And as we worship the Lord Jesus Christ, we can see that there is an attitude of thankfulness in offering that worship. Just as Paul writes to Timothy, I thank Christ Jesus my Lord who has strengthened me because He has considered me faithful, putting me into service. Very few people are going to disagree that we can worship the Father and that we can worship the Son. And so where is the real rub? Where is the real problem and why are we talking about the difference? Because even though we agree that we can worship the Father, that we can worship the Son, there is this business of vain worship that is being offered. By vain, what do we mean? We're not trying to be uh, of, a, of a nature to ridicule someone else. We're not trying to make light of something. We're not trying to suggest that someone who is worshiping God but not according to the New Testament pattern, is doing that in an insincere way. I know that they're sincere. Remember, many of you who know me know that I did not grow up attending the Lord's church. I grew up in the churches of men. I grew up in a denomination. I know that I was sincere in what I believed. But I was wrong. I was sincerely wrong, and the Bible will always be right. Always. And no matter how much I wanted it to say something that it didn't say, no amount of wishing that to be true made it true. I was worshiping God in vain. To no end. That's what the idea is when we think of vain worship. It is worship that is to no end or worship that is futile. It accomplishes nothing. In Matthew chapter 15, we have a situation of the scribes and Pharisees who've come to Jesus from Jerusalem and they've got a charge they want Him to consider. His disciples are breaking now. Notice what they said. They're breaking the tradition of the elders. Notice what they didn't say. They're breaking with the authority of God. That's not what they said. They said they're breaking the tradition of the elders. What were they doing? They were not washing their hands when they ate bread. And Jesus responded to them very sharply. And He said... Why do you yourselves transgress the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? Now notice the difference here. These disciples are breaking the traditions of the elders, but they, the Pharisees and all of those who subscribe to their view, are breaking the tradition or the commandment, if you will, of God. They are transgressing the will and law of God by what they are doing. And so he hits them with that, and it's a very strong, strong shot. Why do you yourselves transgress the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? For God said, honor father and mother. And he who speaks evil of father and mother is to be put to death. But you say, now we've heard what God says, what do they say? You say, whoever says to his father and mother, whatever I have that would help you has been given to God, he is not to honor his father and mother. By this, you've invalidated the Word of God for the sake of your tradition. 
You hypocrites, Jesus said, rightly did Isaiah prophesy concerning you, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. But in vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments or precepts of men. And later, in just as equally of a stern rebuke, Jesus says in chapter 23 and verse 23 to these Pharisees, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin, and you've neglected the weightier provisions of the law. What was that? Uh, righteousness and mercy and faithfulness, justice. These are the things which you should have done, he said, without neglecting the others. But they had failed miserably and had offered worship to God that is vain. When Paul was at Mars Hill... He settled the dilemma there. There were some here in this area who were idolatrous, and they were erecting altars here and there. And just to make sure they covered the bases, here's an altar to an unknown God. In case they miss one, we've got it covered. And Paul said, What you worship in ignorance, this I proclaim to you. Now, I want you to appreciate that if Paul had not corrected them, they would have gone on in ignorant worship, vain worship, they would not have been offering unto the one true and living God their bodies as a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is their spiritual service of worship. That's not what they would have been doing. They would have continued in that idolatry and shame on them. And Paul fixes the issue, at least he, he sets them straight on that matter. Some of them accepted this, others didn't care for, much for it after he spoke of the resurrection. And we need to appreciate that when vain worship is offered to God, what that tells me is it tells me the content of a man's heart. That he thinks that his way is better. Now, some are misguided and some have not considered the issues and some have not thought beyond what they have learned by outward appearances and environment. But in their minds, when you begin to present them with the truth, unless their heart is so soft that it takes it, I can remember how I was. I just was not having it. We knew better. We just knew better than what we were being told by those quote-unquote gospel preachers, by those in the church of Christ. We just knew better. Why? Because we were following our feelings. And that's where the problem comes in. What people need to do is put their faith in the facts, uh, the facts, my friends, of Scripture, and let that determine their feelings rather than being guided by their feelings so as to put their faith in their feelings and let that somehow determine the fact. Now, people will leave out of here something. No, I, I shouldn't say that. But some, some would hear me say this in a different context or in a different setting and leave out of here and suggest that, well, old Bates, he doesn't have any feeling about him. He doesn't have any emotion about him or anything. And you just have no idea how wrong that would be. The difference is that I control those emotions by putting my faith in spiritual facts. And I let the spiritual fact guide me and not my emotions and not my feelings about a thing. So when vain worship is being offered, such as it was here in Matthew 15, these folks thought they thought a little bit higher than perhaps the Lord would have them to think. They were a little bit deeper. Now here's a point that we need to really appreciate. There is not a person here tonight that deserves to be worshipped. Not a one. That's not in any way a slam on someone's character. To be fair and to be all-inclusive, I will never be able to do enough good or be good enough to deserve worship. 
a miserable failure already. And so there's no way that I can deserve worship no matter what I do in my life. If I threw my life down on this road out here and saved a child from being hit by a bus, that would not entitle me to worship. It wouldn't entitle me to anything like that. God, as the one and only supreme being, deserves worship. Now, why is that important? Because in as much as He and His Son, Jesus Christ, possess all authority, they then have the right as God to set forth how He will be worshipped and to restrict worship that He has not approved of or has not been provided as an approved example in Scripture. Jesus has all authority. There is not a soul who is exempt from There is but one exception to that authority, and that is the Father who gave it. 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 27, Paul says, For he that is God has put all things in subjection under his feet, that is the Lord's feet, the Son of God's feet. But when he says all things are in subjection, it is evident that he, God, is accepted who put all things in subjection to him, that is the Son. So when a man adds to God's settled way of worship, then what he is doing is essentially assuming that his wisdom is far superior to that of the Lord's. And what a dangerous game of spiritual Russian roulette he is playing. Bringing the lesson to a close on the final point, as we consider the difference in the church of Christ and the public worship she practices, the worship that we must offer is clearly different. We've established that we're to offer worship in spirit and truth. We've established who the object of our worship is. Now, what is it that we're to do in public worship? We see that Christians offer the worship of prayer to God through Christ Jesus. In Romans chapter 1 and verse 8, Paul praises the faith of these Romans, uh, these Christians at Rome, as their faith is being proclaimed throughout all the world. Their example is being held up as a shining light. And he says, I thank first, I thank God through Jesus Christ my Lord. And in Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 20, giving a similar admonition to the Ephesian saint, saying, always giving thanks to God through our Lord Jesus Christ for all things. And that is giving thanks to God, even the Father. In 1 Timothy chapter 2, I'm going to skip over several passages for the sake of time. 1 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 8, Paul tells Timothy, therefore I want the men in every place to pray. My point in highlighting this passage is simply that when we come together as the church, one of the things that we see that we're to do and to be involved in is prayer. Prayer emphasis was placed highly on prayer throughout the New Testament. When we pray to God, it is not just simply an exercise in some kind of self-psychology where I just talk myself into a better place or I'm speaking into the air. When we pray to God, we have the ear of the Creator of this universe if we are His children. And we know that we can have confidence in the things that we ask of Him and the things that we approach Him with by way of petitions and intercessions and praise and thanksgivings. Also, we see Christians gathering together to sing praises unto God. And you'll see ten passages here that outline the musical praise that is offered unto God. We see in Matthew 26 and verse 30, and a parallel in Mark 14 and verse 26, that after singing a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives, Jesus and His apostles, after the institution of the Lord's Supper. What do we know that they did? They sang a hymn. In Acts 16 and verse 25, here is Paul and Silas in the Philippian prison. And all we know about them 
is that they were of great joy in their worship, even though they were in chains, even though they were behind the prison door, even though they were being guarded over by the prison, by the uh, uh, jailer, who might have had a hand, it seems, in perhaps uh, exacting some kind of punishment on them, because we see in his repentance, it, it appears, that he washed their wounds that hour of the night. At any rate... What are they doing? They are praying and singing hymns of praise to God and the prisoners are listening to them. And we have several other passages here that we could highlight as a means of musical praise offered unto God. And in each case, we're looking at vocal praise. There is not a single instance in the New Testament where we see the instrument of music. And someone says, you mean to tell me you're going to drive a hard bargain on that? You mean you're going to put your foot down on... I mean, what's wrong with the musical instrument? There's nothing wrong with it. There's nothing wrong with the musical instrument. Well, then why don't you have it? Because it's not authorized in New Testament worship. That's why. It has nothing to do with the fact that instruments of music in worship are nowhere mentioned. It has to do with the fact that is in the New Testament. It has to do with the fact that the New Testament does not authorize it. There's simply no authority for it. Someone says, wait a minute now, I read back there in the Psalms. I know that they had instruments of music because I read about it over in Psalm 150. There's no question about that. Under the law, they were authorized for the Israelites. They were to offer worship unto God concerning the musical instrument. And Psalm 150 lays that out. I'm curious though why some tout Psalm 150, but they don't tout Psalm 66 and verse 15. I shall offer to you burnt offerings of fat beasts with the smoke of rams. I shall make an offering of bulls with male goats. My friend, how do you take one passage out of that book and not the other one? I believe it all. I don't have to explain the Psalms. I believe every word of it. And I believe every word of Jeremiah 31, verses 31 to 34, which tells me that the Old Testament had a particular lifetime, lifespan, and it was going to be done away, and the New Testament would be ushered in. And that would be ushered in at the death of Christ and bound upon all men from the day of Pentecost onward. And we need to appreciate also that this is different from the churches of men, not only from the standpoint that we don't have mechanical instruments of music, but that we don't have choirs and concerts and things like that that draw attention not to the Lord, no matter how much they want to tell us that it does. It draws attention to the one performing. It always has, it always will. And the man doesn't live who can prove otherwise. That's what these things do. Or handbells and some other kind of presentation that I remember so well when I was growing up in the denomination and churches of men. These things always were the attraction, the focus of the service. And this was somewhere completely foreign to the message that we were hearing growing up and where I was. But I see from the Scriptures that there's simply no authority for the practices of denominationalism, modern or past. By the way, uh, a fellow that founded a denomination by the name of John Wesley had an interesting take on this particular idea of the singing that is to be offered unto God by way of musical praise. And he suggested that he had no objections at all to musical instruments in houses of worship, provided they were neither seen nor heard. 
Now that was John Wesley on the thing. What do you think his spiritual descendants think of that statement? You can be sure they're not too fond of that statement. He weighed in on something else that we'll say something about in just a second. Christians must also give of their means on the first day of the week, and we see that, as you noticed last night in your talk of the worship or the work that the church was to be involved in, the uh, means that were given and what they're to be used for. Now concerning the collection for the saints as I directed the churches of Galatia, so do you also. On the first day of every week, each one of you is to put aside and save as he may prosper, so that no collections be made when I come. The collection was taken for the saints. We have one passage that authorizes a collection, and we have many passages that authorize what it is to be used for, which you discussed last night. But I want you to see when this was to be taken. On the first day of the week, what does that exclude? It would exclude the idea of love offerings and things of that nature. By the way, it does correspond, it seems, to the fellowship idea of Acts chapter 2 and verse 42. That they continually devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to the breaking of bread and prayer. While in, indeed fellowship is joint participation and the giving would be a joint participation, it's the same Greek word that is used for contribution as well. So it may very well incorporate that. When I mentioned the love offering a minute ago, that is something that is, uh, something that is taken up through the week at some of these assemblies. The, the love offering after each particular revival service, there will be a passing of the plate and these folks will put in and, and pass some of that money along to the preacher. The issue is not, may the preacher be supported for his work. The issue is, is there a New Testament example, is there a New Testament authority for such an offering aside from the first day of the week by the collective church? And I submit to you that there is not. And if there is, then I would ask for one to bring forth that example to be considered. And we need, when we give, to have the right attitude. Just like the attitude of reverence in our worship of God and spirit and truth is important, all important, the way in which we give is also important. What is your attitude when you give? You know, when the bills come due, and we get that bill in the mail, especially in the Tennessee winters, and some of you who have natural gas, you start really gritting those teeth come December and January when those bills come in. Do you grit your teeth when it comes time to give of your means on the first day of the week? Or do you do so joyfully and cheerfully? In 2 Corinthians chapter 9 and verse 6, the writer here says, Now this I say, that he who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, but he who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. But each one must do just as he has purposed in his heart, not grudgingly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. The idea that I want to highlight there, the idea that I want to put, is not this notion that some suggest that by giving more that you get more blessing prosperity-wise in a physical sense. And that is not at all what Paul is teaching. But the attitude needs to be one of cheerful giving. And that's what we should do each first day of the week. Christians eat the Lord's Supper on the first day of the week. If you'll go back to Acts 2 and verse 42, I'm going to have to hurry through this. Acts 2 and verse 42, the breaking of bread is mentioned there. Well, verse 46 says something about the breaking of bread also, but I'll make a distinguishing uh, point about that. That's a breaking of bread from house to house. This is a breaking of bread that is lumped in with fellowship, prayer, and the apostles' doctrine. All spiritual acts. And so to make this a common meal 
is to really abuse that text. The breaking of bread there is the Lord's Supper. And what we see is that the first century disciples met on the first day of the week to eat the Lord's Supper. And that's also implied in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 and verse 20 that when they were to meet together, they were not eating the Lord's Supper, but that's what they were to meet to do. They were to come together to do that, but instead they were making a mockery of that, and there were guidelines given for how the Lord's Supper should be eaten. In other words, I need to make sure that I examine myself and that I'm partaking of the Lord's Supper in a manner that is worthy of the approval of God, not partaking of the cup of demons and the cup of the Lord, and not uh, acting in such a hypocritical fashion or making it into a common meal. The Lord's Church is different from the churches of men because the Lord's Supper observance is not a Johnny-come-lately thing. It's something that has always been done in the Lord's church. It's not some new uh, implemented act of worship. Oh, by the way, John Wesley I mentioned a moment ago, did you ever know what he said about the Lord's Supper? He said he had instructed the elders of the church that he established to make sure that the Lord's Supper was prepared every Lord's Day. I wonder how his spiritual descendants view that statement and have they stuck with Mr. Wesley on that. Christians also assemble to be instructed by the gospel. As we noticed earlier, the churches of men assemble for teaching, but the Lord's church assembles for unadulterated teaching, that is to say, purity in doctrine. Titus is told, but as for you, speak those things which are fitting for sound doctrine. When the church comes together, it comes together for the purpose of being built up and edified in the most holy faith by way of the gospel being preached. Several years ago, some brethren began to tell us of a gospel doctrine distinction. Why, bless their hearts. The Bible knows nothing about that, this gospel doctrine distinction. You can't preach the gospel to the church, one brother said. You preach the gospel to the lost, to the sinners. You preach doctrine to the church. I suppose our brother had not run across Romans chapter 1 and verse 15 when Paul, writing to Christians at Rome, tells them, I'm eager to preach the gospel to you also who are at Rome. What was he talking about? I just wonder how he could do that since there was no way to preach the gospel to the church as we're being told. But this is what we do. We come together to worship in this way because that's the worship that is offered in the New Testament by way of example and that's the worship that the church of God is to offer unto Him. That's the worship that the church of Christ is to offer unto Him. And this is what makes the church different because it is different in every way from its founding to its makeup, to its work, to its worship. In conclusion, we see that God expects us as His followers and even as those who make up the church to be different. We're to come out from that which is worldly and live differently and be different. So the question is, will you dare to be different? Because that's what God calls us to be in relation to the world. Even more, will you dare to worship differently? That is, will you worship as the God of heaven received worship in the New Testament? Will you dare to worship differently than perhaps your mom or dad did because they were not worshiping according to that which is in spirit or truth or in spirit and truth? Will you dare to worship differently than your best friend who lives next door to you? Will you dare to worship differently than your grandfather or grandmother who might have been a denominational preacher or something along that line? Will you dare to worship as God authorizes because that is what He expects of us. And that is one more aspect of what makes the church of Christ different. And if you would be a member of that church and worship God in this way, 
Would you believe that Jesus is the Son of God and confess that tonight? Repent of your sins and be baptized in water for the remission of your sins. It is the Lord Jesus Christ who made this solemn promise that is as true tonight as it was the day it left His lips. And you can read it in your Bible at Mark 16 and verse 16. He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. Maybe you have obeyed the gospel, but you've not remained true to the Lord. need to come back to God through repentance and prayer. Or if it's a public sin that you need us to uh, help you uh, bear by way of that burden and acknowledge that burden and that sin publicly and let us pray with you and for you, then why not make your way to the front in response to the invitation now as we stand and sing.